to season two of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected, where we share inspiring stories with artists and art professionals on a wide range of topics, including race, work ethics, inspiration, and the ways in which art influences and is affected by culture. Join us as we continue the journey of sharing the interesting and inspiring stories of some of today's hottest artists and art professionals in the industry. Let's go! On this episode, we're joined by Storm Asher, founder and owner of Superposition Gallery, which opened in 2018. The gallery represents emerging and mid-career artists from around the globe with an emphasis on creating community. Taking on the life of the nomadic artist and resident, curatorial projects come to fruition through iterations of borrowed spaces in LA, New York, and Miami. Next week, Storm and Superposition are kicking off summer in the Hamptons. In honor of its four-year anniversary, Superposition Gallery presents Resilience, curated by Storm Asher at the Eastville Museum as part of the Eastville Community Historical Society in Sag Harbor's traditionally African and immigrant enclave within the Hamptons, opening on July 4th and running through September 30th. I sat down with Storm to learn more about her gallery, her program, and to learn about the incredible four-year anniversary curatorial exhibition that she's hosting at the Eastville Historical Society. Let's go. Storm Asher, I'm so happy to have you on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you a bit more today and learn more about your gallery and all the wonderful work that you do in the arts. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Sade. It's so nice to be here. I love all the episodes so far, so I'm really excited to be a part of this. Wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in. I'd really like to talk a little bit about some of the things that really interested you in the arts early on in life that you think are some of the reasons that led you to be a gallerist and to pursue an art career and pursue art in your educational life. What are some of the things that were kind of going on? when you were young that inspired you to pursue art? Yeah, well, I used to dance competitively when I was younger. I was on a traveling national contemporary dance team, also a hip-hop dance program that I was the captain of. I was also in theater a lot. I did a lot of, like, child acting theater classes. So it kind of started out with more expression through my body and through my voice. Basically, once I was heading to college, I realized I didn't want to be a dance major, and I started photographing all of our dance performances and behind the scenes of practices and stuff like that. So I guess I kind of always knew I was creative, and I was trying to do visually with my body what I could have been doing with painting or sculpture or photography. So I applied to art school once I was studying abroad in Barcelona and really started understanding the landscape of cities and development and branding and how art is used to do that and different programming in the arts in different countries and how that related back to home. So once I applied to School of Visual Arts in New York, I really had more of an idea of what I wanted to do and that was to be involved in galleries and museums. Beautiful. I love that. And so what were some of your experiences like going to the School of Visual Arts? What are some of your fondest memories and things that you really, you know, remember the most? 
I'd say a lot of the experiences I had because I didn't have an art practice going in was really just having this open format where I could choose any class because I studied visual critical studies, which was based off of the SAIC program, which was a master's program. And so you could do philosophy, art writing, and studio practice at the same time. So that was really interesting to me because I love poetry and I love writing. My mother is a writer, so I grew up always being corrected with my grammar and making sure that everything sounded nice. So using art speak was interesting because you can make up your own words. You can just create a movement just because you've defined it that way so that was really cool for me and then on top of that just being in the studio around artists that had been working their whole lives and really just kind of soaking in all of that Um, and one really fond memory I have from my senior year was that I was asked to curate our senior show so I got really addicted to studio visits so the whole rest of my time at SVA was involved in other people's practice. And yeah, I was, was taking painting, neon sign making, sculpture. I was really just dabbling in all these different fields. And it was just nice that I got all that experience once I realized I wanted to be a curator because I was able to really understand coming from the artist studio perspective first instead of coming at it from a sales perspective or a commercial perspective. Yes, I really love that you mentioned that and that you talked about the studio visit. It's easily one of my favorite parts of the work that we do. And can you, so I'd love to hear you. Yeah. Oh, sorry. 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 I had you on mute so that there there wouldn't be any background noise. But anyway, I love that you talked about the studio visit. It's easily one of my favorite parts of the work that we do. And I would love to hear you share some of why do you enjoy studio visits or why did you at that time? And is is it still a big part of what you do today? Yes, absolutely. It's one of the most important parts of being a gallerist, I would say, especially because I don't have a permanent space. A lot of the ideas and conversations are really important to me in the studio and going to the artist and where they're working and the environment that they're in when they're making. And I think like my favorite studio visit recently was actually Ludwig Inkoff. He actually finished a huge painting right in front of me while singing and talking about all these different memories of the past few years. We were just catching up. And by the time I looked up, like he was done with this amazing painting that was going to Basel, Switzerland. So it's just really cool to be able to be around the environment of somebody in the midst of working and that comfortability that he had to be able to not just have me come for a visit and talk about the work, but literally me standing there with him, asking me what I think in the process and kind of making an entire painting in those three hours that we were together. So that's something that's really cool. Whenever I do end up seeing where that painting ends up, I'll always have a fond memory of that. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that I was thinking about as you were describing that experience with Ludovic was the idea of the magic of a creative space and how the studio for an artist is like, it's almost like a pathway to creation or a portal of experimentation or, you know, a place where you can really dive into all of the 
nuances and all of the interesting things that you're in that like all of the things that you are interested in exploring as a creator and I was also thinking about the nature of collaboration through community and through friendship and through you know colleagues acquaintances and so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the community of people that are that you keep around you and kind of like the friends and the artists that are around you that lend themselves to being able to collaborate with others and being able to build with others, how how important is that to you? I'd say it's the number one thing. I mean, the, the idea of my gallery has really been sustained because of these friendships and these really important connections that we've made. And kind of because we're all around the same generation, they're also watching me excel as I'm watching their practice get better. My curatorial practice also gets better. So it's kind of this reciprocity that we have. And every year, by the time it's our anniversary show, for example, that's coming up, we all get to celebrate like, oh, wow, all of these things that just happened. You just got this grant. This person got into a residency. Oh, Storm just got another curatorial project. Like, it's kind of this nice community of just watching each other grow and helping each other grow. And a lot of these artists also I went to school with and they understand that I'm also still an artist myself. And there's a lot of time in between that's taken up with the business side, but they're all still like, hey, Storm, where's your next painting? I want to see it, you know? So it's just this really nice, yeah, friendship, I would say, more so than a business perspective, even though we try and keep those things separate when we can. It's... The, the lines blur, but I, I appreciate that it does for really being able to give concrete advice to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a perfect segue to kind of talk a little bit about Superposition Gallery, how you started it, what sort of your mission and where, where do things stand right now? And of course, where do you want to see yourself with the gallery in the future? Yeah, so Superposition, I actually came up with the concept over time as I was traveling a lot and going to different art schools, as as I said, in Barcelona, Barcelona actually was this really transformative experience for me where I thought I was taking a class on how to be a travel blogger because it was called city branding, but it actually ended up being about how the 1992 Olympics was used to gentrify a whole area of the Raval in Barcelona. And how they did that was by commissioning artists to make murals and sculptures and new museums and cultural institutions. But by doing this and rushing through that process to be able to show the world that they were ahead of their time, they also made it so that tourism increased, but the actual people that live there don't benefit from these things. And this was a really nuanced thing that I had never heard of or explored before. So once I was back in New York and I started seeing all the signs of how they probably modeled, Barcelona probably modeled this after what New York had done. And New York in the 70s was getting a rep as being full of crime and riddled with, you know, different problems. And they actually ended up branding the I Love NY logo by Milton Glaser to kind of get more of the city to kind of stand up and say, like, New York is great, New York is amazing, and it's, it's like using visual language to propel an idea that may not exist yet. So I thought that that was interesting, and also 
I wanted to be a part of stuff like this. Like I like the idea of creating space, creating places for people to really gather, but not doing it in the way that displaced the people that were already there. So once I started working in galleries as an intern while I was in school, there were a lot of protests actually going on because I was working in the Lower East Side Gallery District. And there was a protest about James Cohen Gallery. They had actually made the facade of their gallery into a fake Chinese storefront. And there was a lot of criticism about this. And it was actually one of the galleries in the same building that I was working at. And I just, yeah, I guess I really was like, okay, this is the peak of what I've been thinking about and what I've been grappling with of do I want to be involved in something like this. So I, I really felt that making space doesn't have to be a permanent structure that takes up what could be used for something else. So the nomadic model that I came up with in my gallery once I graduated was that we expand and contract, we only take up space for when we need it, and it's only to convene, and then we depart. And the evolution of that has gotten more and more easy because these different institutions and other galleries have noticed that it works and collaboration is so much more fulfilling. So recently we did a pop-up with OT projects in Los Angeles. So they opened an auxiliary space next to door to theirs where they invite different galleries from around the world to have a show up for a month. And this is something that I feel is unheard of until the past few years. And I feel like we really have contributed to that, that galleries don't have to be in competition, institutions don't have to be in competition, and the real goal is to have people and the community convene and have these their minds changed by this visual language. Brilliant, brilliant idea. And brilliant concept that you've come up with. I think one of the things that really strikes me so beautifully is that you can activate in anywhere. You have the ability to be at once everywhere and nowhere. And I think that that is really singular and special. And so with, <clears throat> you know, just thinking through the digital footprint and sort of like the in real life footprint and thinking through not only the business aspects of like just from a financial standpoint, the overhead of maintaining a, a physical space versus the ability to sort of activate in different spaces and create programming that could also be very unique to the locations themselves or the history of places or, you know, the heritage <clears throat> and the tradition of a, of a particular location, I think gives one a lot of freedom. And so I'm really curious to ask you about... <clears throat> What are some of your ideas with superposition in the future? What are some of the things that you would like to do in the future? Yeah, so I think the most important thing that I've really realized is that now that we've gotten into art fairs that have an international presence, I would love to expand superposition and really go to these places that artists have thought about in their work or specific places that they have heritage in that they might not be present at right now, but their work probably translates really well in a place that they would have no other means of showing their work at. So my main goal and what my goal was even before the pandemic was to make this international. But of course, the flights were all canceled. So 
I've been waiting to really expand and see like where this would also live because of this idea of this globalist perspective of art traveling and being nomadic. Right. Yes. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of your proudest moments or some of the the highlights that you've experienced since the beginning of Superposition? Yeah, one experience that has still really had me excited, even though it and my collaboration with Anwari Musa, and we did the House of Crown show last year in December at Phillips Auction Galleries in New York. They honestly gave us a space that was beyond what I would have expected to ever see one of my curatorial projects in. It was so beautiful and just expansive and it gave us the means to be able to actually show larger works that we wanted to show for a long time. And just the turnout of the event, I think we had like 500 people come through opening night and it was just really, really rewarding and just affirming that it does work, that I don't have to have a permanent space and this space that we got for two weeks was just beyond. And just riding off of that made me also realize that the space can be different every time, also aesthetically. We're not always looking for a museum-quality show with beautiful lighting and white walls. It could also be outside. It could be installed in a home. It could be in a historical landmark. So what we're doing actually this summer is installing artworks in a historical home that has now been transformed into a museum at the Eastville Historical Society. And we're also hanging banners outside of the fences of this very old cemetery that holds a lot of history. So just being able to think about different ideas of how work could live and it not just being in a white box has been really exciting for me. Yes, I talk to a lot of artists about the white cube, about the white gallery space, the ways in which it is elitist and sort of continues to re-divisiveness and some of the kind of oppression that has been rampant in the art world, you know, in general, and thinking through what does it mean to take art out of the white cube gallery and place art in places that might be potentially unexpected or speak to something larger or speak to a sort of social or political issue potentially. And I think a lot of the artists that we both know in common, their work is very much centered around human experience and social issues and oftentimes racial issues. And so I think it's really um, brilliant to think through subverting the norms of the White Cube Gallery and placing art in unexpected places. And I would love to talk more about your upcoming four-year anniversary benefit, which I'm so excited to attend and just see and so happy for you but I would love you to share more about the benefit the fact that you've been doing it for the last four years how you developed a relationship with the Eastville Historical Society and the time that you've spent in Sag Harbor I would just love to know all about that yes I'm so excited I'm really just proud that we were able to make this connection with the Eastville Historical Society because last year we finally were introduced to them when it was already too late to do the expansive programming that I was imagining. So we actually, we were able to hang banners last year, but we were not able to get physical works in time. 
by this time that the director and I had made a connection. So we had a full year now to plan what is about to open next month. And basically there are 21 artists, mostly from artists that I've worked with for the past four years. And then there's also some newcomers who are all amazing. And we are doing a walking tour of the historical sites that the Eastville Museum preserves by the town through Preservation Long Island. We're having panel discussions and opening reception, and we are also raising money to, through the, we're raising money through the benefit sale to put towards archival research. So we want to hire researchers and archivists. And then also we're going to expand and really inaugurate their contemporary collection to link the past to the future. So we're so excited that we are able to actually use the whole museum and really be able to host all of the artists in this place because Sag Harbor is historically Black and Indigenous. And it used to be a whaling town in the early 1800s. And even before America was founded, Sag Harbor was already established. So there's so much history here that has been forgotten. And we're just trying to get all that stuff to bubble back up. But there's also interesting, more recent history in the 40s of Black elite families who actually could afford a second summer home. So there's a lot of gaps in the history and the ones that people know of the most still aren't even that known. So we're really interested in getting as much of that linear information as possible to then end with the programming that should continue there and having the artists actually be in this space and that can imagine themselves um, in a place of leisure and nature and that they deserve to be there and that they're entitled to be there. And so the show is called Resilience. And I basically thought of this curatorial theme of kind of rising from the ashes or having endurance. And I think of Sag Harbor myself because I've lived here since 2014 as a place to really reinvigorate my soul and my creative spirit because it's such a beautiful place by the water and just really quiet and laid back. And I think a lot of people don't think of people of color as having experiences like that, but there's millions of stories like this that need to be highlighted. So that's really what the goal is with this exhibition. Beautiful, beautiful. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more directly about the participating artists. You know, some of them are fellow friends that we mutually share. Others are artists that I I don't know and haven't heard of. But I'm really curious about your selection and your choice of pairings and how that lends itself to what it is that you're saying with this particular curation. Yes. So some artists that you might not know of yet, but are local to the Hamptons are Jeremy Dennis, who is actually a Native American artist. He runs a residency program called Ma's House on the reservation in Southampton. So we're really excited to have him involved on this project because there is so much crossover and interesting history between the Shinnecock and the Montaukets and freed slaves who were inside Harbor at that time. So it was really this interracial community that has a lot of history together and this idea of coexistence that I really care about myself as a multiracial person. So Jeremy Dennis is showing some photography from one of his series about Native American traditions in the Hamptons. And then Michael Butler, who is literally 
a resident who lives down the street across from the cemetery. He makes these miniature paintings with very tiny brushes, and it's all about Black life on the beach in Sag Harbor. So it's, it's just the pinnacle of what we are talking about, this idea of being able to imagine yourself in these scenes and things that we would not associate with the Black experience, like going fishing or surfing or just lounging on the beach and having a drink. And then the artist that I've worked with for a while, like John Rivas, he's presenting a very large painting of someone in his family. And Helena Metafaria, who was in our Phillips show. So there's a lot of different artists that are coming together that are finally going to meet at this place as well. And really, I'm hoping to cultivate in like a movement out here so that people can remember the Hamptons as another place where artists gathered, especially because a lot of art history in the Hamptons is only thought of as Jackson Pollock or Willem de Kooning. So I'd really like to have a movement focus out here that shows that contemporary living artists can still claim Hamptons as a place that inspired them. Beautiful. Just just beautiful. I really love it. I think one of the last things that I wanted to touch on and just kind of as we round out the episode, you spoke a bit about the Black experience, about the ways in which Black life is sort of seen and the ideas that people more broadly may have about the kinds of things that Black people do in America for their leisure or what they have access to or spaces that they are able to inhabit. And the more you shared that perspective and that point of view, I started, you know, immediately thinking about the fact that none of those broader big picture stories about Black life in America have been told by Black people. Like everything that I heard was like through the lens of whiteness and the very restricted ways in which our, you know, the very restricted ways in which white American society and, and, and white society more broadly oppresses even what black people think they they can be or what they are, what their possibilities are through media, through music, through the written word, through text, through books. And so I feel like what you're really getting to, which is the heart of the matter, like the meat and the potatoes, so to speak, is that when we begin to take ownership and when we begin to tell our own stories, that we tell more truthful and accurate accounts of our own lives. Like no one else can really tell your story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the funniest part about all of this is that I realized that there was Black history in the Hamptons because I was reading kind of like a autobiographical but not really novel about Sag Harbor by Colson Whitehead. And so this was his own story and his own accounts and little tidbits of memories that he had in the summertime of coming out to the Hamptons with his family. And I read about this in 2019, and apparently Colson Whitehead was there a lot in the 80s and still has a home out here. But it was just so interesting to be reading this book and describing all the streets that I was literally walking on while reading and looking around and thinking, well, where's all the stuff that he's talking about and all this history? Because nobody has ever told me this. I've been here for five years. Like, how does this work? So I was so glad that somebody told their story and the truth of all of it. I mean, 
some of the quotes from this book were just mind-blowing, like telling, he was telling readers that he was scared to walk around Main Street with a watermelon while being black, even though he was just going to get something for the cookout and walk back to his house for his family. And the idea that even in your own town, you feel like you can't buy an object because it will look like a stereotype was just so ridiculous. And yeah, I guess for myself coming out here and getting all the questions of, well, how can you afford to live here? Or who do you know here? Or why are you wearing that? I mean, being from California compared to like the Northeast, I mean, clothing ideas were very different, but I've kind of just learned to let my hair out out here because yeah, it's just been a lot of back and forth of really figuring out what my story is here and that I'm not just a visitor anymore. So I hope that all the artists participating can also feel that way. Yes, I think that's a beautiful message to round out the episode. And then lastly, I would just like, can you share with us just the, the, the details of the benefit and like when it's happening? Where can people find more information when they're listening? Yes, so the benefit is opening on July 4th on Independence Day at the Eastville Museum at 139 Hampton Street in Sag Harbor. And then on July 5th, we will have a panel discussion and a walking tour of the museum grounds and the other areas that they preserve, such as the church and the cemetery. So I would definitely try to make both events. You can find more information on our website at superpositiongallery.com. So I really hope to see everyone there. And you too, Shade, you better come. Of course, of course. You already know I'm in the building. (laughs) So excited to be there. So excited. (laughs) Yeah, me too. So thank you so much for joining me on the episode. I, you know, just want to say that as a friend of yours and as someone who's been watching your journey and getting to know you over the last couple of years, I'm just so happy to call you a friend and so happy to see your journey and wishing you so much more continued success. Thank you so much, Shade. Much love. I'll see you soon. Okay. Talk to you soon, babe. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was our episode with Storm Asher. I want to give a big shout out and thank you to Storm for joining us on this episode. And it's a wrap, folks. That's our episode of Lightwork Presents Everything is Connected. Conversations on culture and current events with some of today's hottest creative contemporaries. These episodes were recorded in between New York and Miami and reflect the times we are living in while also adding some commentary to the social, cultural, and political issues of the past year. I'm your host, Fola Shade Ologundudu, and we'll see you next time. As always, stay motivated, stay inspired, and stay up. Peace and love, y'all. We out.